So please turn within your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse... Really, my text is going to be verse 13 through 17. I, I'm going to build a little bit of the context here this morning for us as well. And sometimes people wonder what pastors do when they don't have to speak on a Sunday morning. I've, I've heard that question posed to me on occasion. And uh, I was uh, feeling very comfortable last night when, uh, when Lane was, was recognized that Lane hasn't spoken at his church for the past two Sundays. And uh, with, the, with, the, with the, um, the evangelistic teams that they've been doing this week, and, and uh, his, uh, there was a little kidding going along with that and, and all of that. And, uh, but uh, one of the things that I do when I don't have that burden of immediately preaching on a Sunday morning is I take time to to catch up a little bit and also think through future passages that I might be preaching from and uh, take time to analyze the church calendar, think it through Sunday by Sunday, and prayerfully consider preaching portions, how, how much am I going to speak on on any given Sunday. And uh, I try to get maybe a sermon title, and then I start picking out some songs. And I might do this for three or maybe four months, three, four months out, trying to just project a little bit as to what we might be going through. And it takes time, and I pray over that. And as we get a little bit closer, I try to refine the title, look at the text in more detail, make tweak a few things as the week unfolds. And uh, it's interesting. From time to time, people will tell me that, that a particular message or sermon or emphasis was very helpful to them, and I thank the Lord for that. There are other times when I come across a passage of Scripture, and I'm like, and I think as I get closer to it, I'm like, wow, this really fits a lot with what's going on in our world. In particular, this message, I think, in this, uh, this section about the Christian's relationship to government, I think is uh, probably very high on our thoughts uh, in relation to the election that's coming in November, and I think that uh, for many of us, we're concerned we are perhaps even confused. Maybe we are conflicted as well. Thankfully, we've got God's Word for us. We've got it here. And God's Word is always applicable. It's always applicable to our need. And I'm, I'm always encouraged that when the Word of God is open, the Spirit of God through the Word can communicate to our deepest need. And so, just a Let's consider this morning, we want to think through, what is the Christian's relationship to earthly government, to authorities, and to our society as a whole? But we need to reconsider. It's been a couple of weeks, as I said, I've been out of the pulpit this past Sunday because uh, Herb Hunter was here presenting his work to South Africa. Two weeks ago, or a week before that, we had communion, so I had a communion-focused message from Romans. The week before that, we had uh, encounter with us, and uh, so Artie was speaking. So we're kind of maybe out of connection with the book of First Peter here a little bit. And I think that it's important for us just to remember some of the key themes that Peter is developing. And the first is that we're elect exiles. In verse 1, Peter puts our identity into focus and perspective. We are in this world, but we are exiles. We're not really connected to it. We're sojourners. But that might give us anxiety, but God has chosen us, 
and that should strengthen our resolve to live for Him. And the blood of Jesus Christ is the key to that selection of bringing into the family of God. The precious blood of Christ in verses 18 to 20, uh, Peter describes that you were ransomed from your feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And this, this purchase then, we are now called, we've been called to be in the family of God, but we're called in verse 15 to be holy. Be holy as I am holy. And then we are also called to love one another, verse 22. It talks about that we have been born again. We've been uh, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. That is your faith commitment to God for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another with earnestly from a pure heart. And then we are to grow by ingesting the the spiritual milk, and this is in chapter 2 and verse 2. Like newborn infants, long for that pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. At the time, we talked about this as being the gospel itself and also the Word of God to us. We need a responsiveness to the Word of God. And then, This calling has caused us to become lights in the world, and this is where we're getting to today. In chapter 2, verse 9, in the text that was read, it says that that, um, we are a people of His own possession that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And what Peter is focusing our attention now on is that You've been called out, you're in exile, you're elect, but you are here still in the world to be a light to the world. So the rest of this book is going to unfold that theme of being a light in the world, how we relate to government, how do we relate to employers, in their case, masters, how do we relate in families where there's unbelief, how do we let the light shine in this world? And Peter's taking up this theme from the Sermon on the Mount. This is not just from his own teaching. He was taught by Christ himself in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you are the light of the world, so let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so Peter is drawing on this teaching of Jesus and now applying it to us as believers in this world that we are to live as lights. Clearly then, we're called to be lights. But what does that look like? Well, notice in verse 12 of chapter 2, Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Drop down to verse 15. This doing good appears again. He says, for this is the will of God that by doing good you shall put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And even down in verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. And so the opposite of that would be, instead of having a cover-up, but but to be explicitly good to all the world. 
Now, what does it mean here by doing good? What is the goodness that's being talked about here? I do not believe that this is specifically, although it could be related to this, Peter is talking not here about watching wholesome movies in your home as opposed to going and watching filthy movies some other location. It's not the kind of good deeds that he's talking about here. But what he's talking about here is really the good deeds that move into a community where there's great and deep hurt and need. He's talking about works in action, things like caring for children who are dying of AIDS, feeding the malnourished, teaching illiterate, visiting prisoners, doing good deeds, proclaiming the excellencies of God. And so, it's important for us to keep that as a distinction here and anchor our thoughts that when he's talking about good deeds, he's talking about involvement in our communities, in our society, and in showing the love of God to peoples. And so, this morning, we're going to be looking at practical ways in which we can be a light in this world through our relationship to earthly governments, authorities in our society as, as a whole. In verse 13 to 16, that's really the most part of this paragraph, Peter's saying you need to willingly submit yourself to governmental process. You need to be submitting yourself to governmental authority, to laws, so that you're not accused of being some covert group of renegades. Someone once said that uh, almost any government is better than no government. And that, I'm sure, is debated at times and around certain tables and diners. But that uh, is truth, that we as people, we need authority over us. We have within us a sin nature that needs constraint. We need to have governments over top of us. I mean, you think about the power vacuum that occurred in the Middle East when we went in and we removed Saddam Hussein, and there were a lot of good things that came from that. But in the process, they elected a government that, that, really, that really wasn't kind of able to, to control the populace there, and then ISIS develops, and there's all kinds of chaos going on in the land there. And uh, almost any government is better than no government. Government is a gift from God. But regardless of the kind of government that we have over us, we've got a responsibility to it. The word submit is a very interesting word here in this, this verse, or be subject, verse 13. It has the idea, it's a military expression, which literally means to be arranged underneath of, maybe like a, creating a formation under the commander. And Peter and Paul, they both lived in a, in a very openly sinful society. In the Roman Empire, it was, it was, it was infamous for the evil that occurred in the, in the city. Homosexuality was rampant. Infanticide was ever common. There was governmental corruption. There was abuse of women. There was immorality. There was violence. Does this at all sound familiar? 
But neither Jesus nor the disciples granted any exemptions for believers. We're to arrange ourselves under formation, underneath of the authority of the government that we have. That's what we're called to do. Now, we do live in a different era, and there are distinctly different things here. We don't have an emperor, at least not yet, right? In theory, our government is the highest level of authority is in the Constitution itself. Laughing to myself, thinking out loud here that here I am, a Canadian talking about this. <laughs> but the preamble to the Constitution says, We the people. And by the way, the Constitution has formed a template for many, many Western countries since America, and it's been very helpful to all, including Canada. We, we, we have, Canadians have borrowed from the ideas contained in it, and we're thankful for it. And I am also American, too, so I better just get off that whole thing, too. I am a, I'm a dual citizen. I'm Canadian and American, and I'm, I'm really third culture. I really don't even know where I am at times. <laughs> but the Constitution says, we the people do ordain and establish the Constitution for the United States. So the Constitution is the highest authority by which we arrange ourselves underneath of information. So we have legislative processes, we have voting, we have representations, representatives rather, who go to legislate on our behalf. At least we would hope that would be the way it works. But it has been tested through the centuries, and truthfully, this form of government is the best form of government, of self-government that has existed. And so the supreme authority is not the President of the United States. It is the Constitution to which he ought to submit himself as well to. And as I said, there is a unique difference here. The emperor's word was law. And we live in a different world in which the Constitution is the word of law to us and asks us as citizens to participate in government. The supreme Rule of law commands us as believers to be participants in the process. That's very unique. So, in other words, to submit ourselves underneath of the authority for us as believers is to participate in voting. It is to participate if God would call some of us into legislative office. Those are just and legitimate uh, some of us may be called into judicial positions. But that is a participation, that is a willing participation that we as believers are expected to participate in. And doing good, by implication what I'm saying here, is that doing good involves, it means, literally it means involvement in our country's affairs, in our government. We're not just to avoid doing wrong, but we're rather to be doing good and participating in the benefiting the welfare of our community. And so as believers, if we're to fall in underneath of that, we ought to, by implication then, be thinking about educating ourselves and thinking about the issues that relate to our country, but also our local community. I mean, we need to be thinking about the drug problem that is here in Wayne County. 
We ought not just leave that to legislators. It's a problem that affects our community, and to do good to our community may mean that some of us are involved actively in organizations that try to resist it and try to correct it. We need to be thinking about domestic abuse. We need to be thinking about rights. We do need to be thinking about education and quality of life. It's not just for the liberals to think about, it's for Christians to think about. We need to be serving on the school boards. We need to be involved in community AA groups or food pantries and voluntary fire departments, and I know many of you do. EMT, shelters. There's a whole host of ways that we can be doing good in our community and making an impact for Christ. I think uh, it, we, we have to be very careful that we not belittle Christian involvement in these areas because we need Christians in these areas. It, because it, it provides a safeguard, it provides a haven for us as believers to have people of prominence or involvement in a community that are known as Christians, it gives us a safeguard so that the gospel on a Sunday morning can go out with freely. And I know that we have constitutional guarantees, but participation in our community goes a long way to sustaining those liberties. And I also think that we ought not just assume that um, community involvement is only for foreign missionaries. I mean, we support the ROTs who use their ministry to engage a community. Those are great opportunities, and they're opportunities that we not should also consider as well. God may use us to be creative as well. I think of the stairs. Another one of our missionaries in South, uh, they, while they were in South Africa, she used to volunteer, they as a couple would volunteer to be emergency relief for uh, children uh, who were going to be abandoned and they were look, needing a place for them to go. That is a tremendous opportunity, and it's just an example. And my wife, Abby and I were talking about this, uh, how that, the church that she grew up in, in Westchester, Pennsylvania, uh, participated in what was called the PA Action Line for Life. And it was a network routing through telephone lines um, to stay-at-home moms who would be kind of like a crisis volunteer to, to, to field a 1-800 number of a young girl in Pennsylvania who was looking for answers to what to do with her child. And that was routed to, little, to, to, to moms who were at home. That's been a 30-year ministry, but you know what? This is the last year of that ministry. They can't get enough people to participate in it. We need people to be going out into our communities. It is a part of our call as believers. And when we go, we take the gospel of Jesus Christ and we bring the character of Jesus Christ. It's one thing to, to do acts of ministry, but we have to live the gospel too before people. We can't uh, be so actively involved and then be all of a sudden be known for being a gossip or a slanderer or maybe that we've, we've fallen to drunkenness and like that's, that's, not, that's not proclaiming the light either. There's a balance there that has to be hacked. And so it, 
what Peter is saying here is that as a, as a very minimum, we ought to be involved in our communities and our government in meaningful ways. And as a governmental responsibility, at a very minimum, that means we ought to be voting as believers. That's what we've been called to do. And so this also, not only, not only is Peter talking about involvement, he's also talking about compliance. Compliance. It means that we, we do the little things that the law requires of us, even if they're painful and annoying. Maybe even if we don't even understand them. You know, we get in our cars, and what do we do? We tend to black out the world, don't we? It's so easy to pick up that phone, start texting, you know, and get distracted. Those are little things to which we are called to be compliant as believers, and we fall. I have fallen. But they're all things at which we are to be compliant regarding. So the Christian stance will be to be compliant as soon as we become aware of what the law requires of us. And so what Peter is saying, we've got to be involved. We've got to be a light in all of these things. But we also, in verse 17, the last part of this paragraph, it's just one verse, he gives four little short little quips. And so he's saying here, you're to honor all peoples, classes, authorities as created in God's image. So he says, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. To honor all people is to treat a person as valuable, as a person of worth. And we're to treat others with the dignity that's due to them as creatures made in the image of God. Every person has been made in the image of God, even those political leaders we don't necessarily care for. We need to have respect for all men. And above that, we're to love the brotherhood. This is, yes, we we show a love for the world, but there's a kind of a special place for the people of God. It means that we are to love our fellow believer And the question of application here is, are we loving the church? Do we love the church, or is the church kind of something that we we kind of like put on a back burner? The church and the people who are in it are important. Fear God. There's an intended uh, focus of our attention here that We've got to trust Him in the midst of the circumstances we can't control or how difficult they seem. We've got to recognize, as Spencer said, the sovereign one. He's the one who orchestrates everything. He's the one who raises kings and overturns governments. He is the one to whom we ought to give our ultimate fear and trust. And then lastly, he says to submit to and honor the king. Honor the king. Respect him. God is the one who sets them up and puts them down. So it's actually honoring of God. <laughs> like children obey your parents and Lord for this is right. How many times do we tell our children that you're honoring me through honoring, you're honoring God rather through honoring me? You know what? When we honor our elected officials, we honor God who placed them there. I want us to think through carefully what's being communicated here. We can't miss this point. 
regard to involvement in community and government. Our most effective light will always be the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I'm not only talking about the Romans Road. I'm also talking about the gospel in our heart. I'm talking about that which has done a work of transformation in here that causes you to honor all people. This is what the gospel is all about. Creating harmony and reconciliation. In America, we face a particularly unique challenge. We have freedom to participate in government. We also have the potential to become distracted by governments too. Satan would so love for us to become so overburdened by what ultimately we have no control over. It is he alone who sits in the heavens and laughs at the children of men. I just want to share an illustration of this thought. C.S. Lewis cleverly wrote a series of letters fictitious letters from a senior demon to a junior demon of how to distract and tempt believers and kind of coach them along the process of like trying to get Christians off target. And uh, in this very short letter, he says, my dear Wormwood, that's the senior, or that's the younger, Uncle Screwtape is the older, he says, be sure that the patient, that is Christians, remains completely fixated on politics, arguments, political gossip, and obsessing on the faults of people that they have never met. It serves as an excellent distraction from advancing in personal virtue, character, and the things that the patient can control. Make sure to keep the patient in a constant state of angst and frustration and general disdain towards the rest of the human race in order to avoid any kind of charity or inner peace from further developing. Ensure that the patient continues to believe that the problem is out there in the broken system rather than recognizing that there is a problem within himself. Keep up the good work, Uncle Screwtape. You know, Satan would so love for us to get so worked up into a fit of frenzy that we begin to disdain and we do not honor all people. The gospel is the great equalizer. It puts us all on the same foundation. We are all saved by grace alone through Christ. We're all sinners in need of grace. So, in closing, I want to provide a couple of principles from Scripture. You may have seen within your bulletin a little handout. I've got five principles that I want to, in closing, share with you to consider in terms of how we as believers can participate in government in a meaningful way. The first comes from 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2, and I can't possibly turn to every reference, but I encourage you to take time even this week as we lead up to our general election just to be thoughtful regarding. Pray for your elected leaders. Peter, excuse me, Paul in 1 Timothy commanded us that we are to pray for all men. God wants all men to come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He desires that all men would be saved. But are we praying for our elected leaders? As I said earlier, even the ones we despise? I mean, even the ones to which 
the worldview is completely turned against us, it seems, and we want to stand for the truth? Are we genuinely praying for them? That is very critically important for you. Don't miss this point. By praying for them, you will be elevating them up in your mind. You'll be lifting them up as being made in the image of God. And that's the only way that you can practically honor them. Number two, seek the welfare of your community. Jeremiah 29, 4 through 14 is the idea, and I do believe that Peter has this in his memory and thinking as he's commanding and teaching and talking about exiles because Jeremiah told the exiles that were going to be taken to Babylon and be put in captivity for 70 years to seek the welfare of the city to which they were going to be taken. That would be the last thing that a Jew would want to do, but it was the thing that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. It was what Daniel did. And in their service, they secured the future of their homeland. And they were returned from exile. Their belief in the promises of God made it so that they would be involved in the communities in which they lived. And that's how it is for us as believers. Three, prioritize your submission to God's authority. Matthew 22, 21, and Acts 5, 29. This is the famous text where the, where the Sadducees tried to trick Jesus into like, you know, how, should we give our coins to Caesar or do we give them to God? And, and, and Jesus said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but to God the things that are God's. And it's an astute prioritization here. To obey human government is to obey God. But when human government causes us to disobey God, then we must ultimately obey God rather than men. That is the implication of what Jesus is saying here. But this also involves our conscience. And the human conscience is a precious gift of God. And the Word of God teaches us that we ought not sear our consciences because it's the key, something that helps us in moments to discern between right and wrong. And so we have to be very careful as we think about government and process to not allow our consciences to become marred in the process. Number four, use your voice to promote righteousness. Proverbs 29, verse 2. I mean, there are many passages I could have turned to in this process, but Proverbs are very succinct and Proverbs 29.2 says, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. I know we've been groaning for a long time. I know we've been groaning for a long time. But we should all want righteousness to increase. That ought to be the framework for which we consider our leadership. But maybe we put so much emphasis upon our national leaders that we neglect the fact that there are local leaders Our national leadership is only a reflection of the people. And our tendency is not to think so carefully in considering local officials. And we become so fixated on the big ones. We need to recognize that our involvement as believers, we ought to be wanting righteousness on a local level, not just turn a blind eye to what happens in the paper of corruption. We need to be speaking righteousness here on a local level so that spreads to the rest of the nation. That is the only way. 
we can turn. We need to be using our conscience in voting as pro-life as possible. Be voting for justice, voting for righteousness. And then point five here at the end, after participating in government, then we need to rest in God's sovereignty. Daniel 2, verse 20 to 21, Romans 13, God is the one who, who has put people in place. He has used, He's orchestrated in the background. And we know the Bible says in Romans 3.23, all of sin comes short of the glory of God. But it's so easy to put our hope and our focus on a particular campaign. And, but the Bible says, look, do not put your trust in princes. They can't save you. And that strikes at the very heart of the issue. It's a worship issue. Do we worship God? Are we putting our hope in Him? What are we putting our hope in? Psalm 118.8 says, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in people. And until Christ's return, we've got to navigate, we've got to sort through, we've got to think, we've got to use the best wisdom that we possibly have, but we're operating in a context of imperfection. There's sin everywhere. But there is no authority that comes except without God. Daniel 2, 20 to 21 says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons, He removes kings, and He sets up kings. That is where our hope is. Let us be stirred in our hearts to be involved in our local communities so that the freedom of the gospel of Jesus Christ might go out and that people might see the good deeds, not to be glorifying in us, but to be glorifying in our Heavenly Father. Let us close with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You do rule and You reign over all things. And so, Father, I pray that You would be with us as a people, that we would put our ultimate trust and strength and refuge in You. Lord, that we would be seeking You with all of our heart, that we would be loving righteousness, that we would be loving people and honoring people, that we would be involved in our communities. And may those avenues bring about spiritual fruits and conversions and people being added to your kingdom. And so, Father, I pray that you would consecrate us, Lord. Even as we sing our last and closing hymn here this morning, Lord, that we would be consecrated only to you. And that is what would be our heart cry this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.